There was a book written by comedian Ken Davis, and he tells this story. John Cassis is one of the nation's finest speakers. He was one of the inspirational leaders of the Chicago Bears during their glowing glory years. Now, if you're not a sports fan, um, what kind of sport is represented when I say the Chicago Bears? Who knows? Football. Okay, just to make sure we're on the same page here. He um, is an inspirational speaker, and he often gave short talks to players on game day. As John tells it, the coach, Mike Ditka, was about to deliver a locker room pep talk one day. He looked up and saw this man. Some of you might recognize him. Defensive tackle William Refrigerator Perry. How could he not see him? At 338 pounds, the fridge stood out even among a crowd of pro football players. Ditka gestured to the fridge. When I get finished, he said, I'd like you to close with the Lord's Prayer. Then the coach began his talk. Meanwhile, Jim McMahon, the brash and somewhat outspoken quarterback, punched John Cassis. Look at Perry, McMahon whispered. He doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. Sure enough, Perry sat with a look of panic on his face. His head in his hands, he was, he was sweating profusely. Everybody knows the Lord's Prayer, said Cassis to McMahon in disbelief. After a few minutes of watching the refrigerator leaking several gallons of sweat, McMahon nudged Cassis again. I'll bet you 50 bucks the fridge doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. As Cassis tells the story, he stops to reflect on the absurdity of it all. Here we were sitting in chapel and betting 50 bucks on the Lord's Prayer. When Ditka finished his pep talk, he asked all the men to remove their caps. Then he nodded at Perry and bowed his head. It was quiet for a few moments before the fridge spoke in a shaky voice. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Cassis felt a tap on his shoulder. It was Jim McMahon. Here's the 50 bucks, man. I had no idea Perry knew the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> That's a, a remarkable story. Today we're continuing our series on the Lord's Prayer. And last week we saw that when the disciples watched Jesus. They saw a man who had a connection with God like nobody they had ever seen before. And if you were to ask him, what is his secret? I believe they would have said this, prayer. Jesus had prayed like no one they had ever known before. And so at one point they come to Jesus and say, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Now last week as we began this series on the Lord's Prayer, there were a couple of things that I pointed out. We looked at the first phrase, our Father in heaven. And there were two lessons that we drew. And here's the first, and this is on your outline. Lesson one, in prayer, we approach God as children coming to a father. Jesus taught that the way you live depends on how you think about God. And he stressed how important it is to think about God as a father and to know the closeness of a father-child relationship with God. And here was the second lesson. This is also on your outline. God has given us the privilege and responsibility of praying with and for others. Now, if you were here last week, you know that I challenge you to take your prayer life to the next level. And for guys who are married, I challenge you to, to pray with your wives and to pray with and for your children. And I just wanted to say as a follow-up that when we pray with our family members, it doesn't have to be a long, involved prayer. It can be a really short, brief prayer. For example, my wife, Chris, and I, whenever we go somewhere in the car together, before we pull out of the driveway, I just reach over and grab her hand and we say a short prayer. We did that this morning before we came to church. Or here's another opportunity when you sit down together to have a meal. It's a great time to thank God for all the ways that he takes care of you. 
Or if you're a mom or a dad and you have kids in school, when they start their day, before they go off to school, you can think about what they're going to be doing. Maybe there's a quiz or a test and you could just say a brief prayer about that. Or maybe they're in athletics or in performing arts and you can just pray about a performance or a game. What I want you to do is this. Be on the lookout for ways that you can pray with and for your family, um, your friends, your church family, all the people that God brings into your prayer circle. Now today, we're going to consider this next phrase in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. And there are two ideas that we need to talk about this morning. The first is this, what does the word name refer to? In past generations, your name revealed a lot about you, and in fact, much more than it does today. For instance, your last name often revealed your occupation. If your last name was Carpenter, what did you do for a living? <laughs> you were a carpenter, just to make sure you're on the same page. If you were a miller, what did you do? You were a miller. Now, Jewish families often gave special thought to the names they chose for their children. They picked names that they hoped would reflect personal qualities that they wanted to see developed in their kids. The Puritans did this too. They would give their kids names like hope or faith or charity. Your name might also indicate who is your father. For example, Johnson meant that you were John's son, or Williamson meant that you were William's son. And then there were Native American Indians, and they gave very descriptive names like Sitting Bull, or the name that was given to Kevin Costner in the movie, Dances with... Yeah, a very descriptive name. Now, in the ancient world, the time of the Old Testament, names were extremely important, and here's why. Your name represented your character. And if you knew the name of a really important person, knowing their name gave you access to their resources and their abilities. Now, in the Bible, God reveals himself by many different names, and each of these names give us insight into the character of God, who he is, what he's like. So I want to do this. I'm going to walk you through five names of God. There are many more, but this is just representative. And here's the first. This is on your outline, El Shaddai. It means God Almighty. Now, this is a name that God used to reveal himself to Abraham. And you may remember the story that God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want to establish a covenant with you. I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to make promises to you. Now, God wanted Abraham to know that he had the power to do what he had promised. And so he reveals himself by the name God Almighty. And here's another name of God, the name Yahweh or Jehovah. And this is from a story in Exodus chapter 3. It's a story of the burning bush where God comes to Moses and said, here is my name. I am who I am. And that comes from a Hebrew verb that means to be. And one Hebrew scholar believes that the best way to translate this name Yahweh is this, he who causes the heavenly armies to be. And the idea is that God is the commander of, of all these angelic armies, and he's willing to fight for his people. Now, here's another name of God, the name Jehovah Jireh. And this is found in a story in Genesis 22. This is a story where Abraham is commanded by God to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And it was a test of faith. And you may recall in the story, Abraham is just about to follow through, and God just intervenes dramatically and provides a substitute. There's this ram that's caught by its horns in the bushes. And this was pointing forward to another sacrifice, the coming of Jesus Christ, who would be our sacrifice, God's provision, so that our relationship with him could be reconciled. So God is known as our provider. Here's another name, Sur. It means rock. And this is a name that we find often in the book of Psalms where it says that God is a refuge, that God is a fortress, 
that God is a strong tower, and when we run to God, we are safe and we are protected. And then here is the last name, Kadosh. It means the Holy One. And that conveys the thought that God is perfect, that he has no character defects, that he is completely apart from anything earthly or human. And this is really interesting. When the scribes would actually write the verses of the Old Testament, every time they came to a name of God, you know what they would do? They would get a new pen, a new quill, because God's name was so holy. In fact, the name Yahweh was considered to be so holy that it was never spoken aloud. So those are some of God's name. But the question is this, what does it mean to hallow God's name? Because that's not a word we use very much. Well, Webster's the dictionary says this, to hallow is to respect greatly. And the idea is that when you hallow something, you recognize its value and its worth. Remember a story that I heard one time from Pastor John Ortberg about recognizing the value and the worth of, of something. And it was about this man who goes into this antique shop in San Francisco. And this guy is an antique collector. I mean, he knows his antiques. And he walks into the store and he realizes that most of the stuff is really just junk. But then he sees this cat. And this cat is drinking from this saucer, but the saucer is actually a vase from the Ming Dynasty in China. And it is worth a fortune. And so he thinks, man, this is an opportunity of a lifetime because obviously the owner has no idea what this is worth. So he goes up to the owner of the shop and he says, hey, buddy, um, I really like that cat. I'll give you $100 for the cat. And the owner goes, well, I don't think so because we're kind of attached to the cat. And the guy says, no, really, I really would like to have him, so I'll give you $100. And the man says, well, okay, if you really like the cat, I'll give him to you for $100. And the man says, and by the way, um, I need a bowl for the cat, you know, to feed him and to give him some milk. So uh, why don't you throw in the saucer for, let's say, 10 bucks? And the owner of the store says, well, I couldn't possibly do that. And the man says, why not? And he says, well, because that saucer is actually a vase from the Ming Dynasty in China, and it's worth a fortune. But the funny thing is, ever since I've been using that to feed cats, I've sold 17 cats in the store. <laughs> you know, all of us are used to doing this, to attaching monetary value to different items. For example, one of the most successful game shows in television history was hosted by Bob Barker. Who knows the name of the show? Yeah, The Price is Right. And what do you do when you're a contestant? You have to guess the value of a certain object, right? Well, when Jesus says, here's how you should pray, hallowed be your name, we are asking people to know how much God's name is worth because God's name represents God's character. The church, sadly, in our world, God's name is grossly undervalued. I mean, every single day, all around this planet, God's name is dishonored. Now think about this. Have you ever been to a, a sporting event where they play the national anthem? And when the national anthem plays, isn't it interesting to look at people's reactions? Because sometimes people, do, they stop dead in their tracks, right? And they stand at attention. Sometimes people salute or they put their hand over their heart. And you can tell that they really honor and respect our nation. But do you notice that some people don't have that same perspective? Ever see that? I mean, people just act like nothing is happening. You know, they're just talking to their friends and kind of oblivious to the fact that the national anthem is being played. Well, that's what's happening in our world when it comes to honoring God. There are people who are really serious and really intentional about honoring God. And those who aren't, those who don't even seem to care. And that's why Jesus says, listen, when you pray, you pray this way. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, God, may people realize how worthy you are. May they realize how holy you are and honor your name. Now, church, this is a great mystery, that God has allowed the holiness of his name, his very own reputation, to be bound up in the character and the conduct of his people. Christians are a reflection of the character of God in the eyes of the world. So when we say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, we're basically saying this, God, I want my life to make you look good. And that brings us to this third lesson. It's actually our first lesson today from the Lord's Prayer. This is on your outline. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we are asking God to enable us to give him the honor he deserves. Notice this, by our words, our attitudes, and our actions. We're asking God to enable us to give him the honor he deserves by our words, our attitudes, and our actions. Somebody emailed me this this story goes like this. A woman was sitting in her car at a red light. The light turned green, but the man in the car ahead of her didn't notice. The woman got annoyed as traffic began to pull around her, and she started to pound on the steering wheel, yelling for the guy to move. But the man didn't move. At this point, the woman went ballistic, ranting and raving. The light turned yellow, and she lays on her horn, rolls down her window, and curses at this guy. All the commotion gets his attention, And the man looks up, sees the yellow light, and accelerates through the intersection just as the light turns red. Well, now she is really beside herself since she missed her chance to get through the intersection, and she is still yelling and cursing when she hears a tap on the passenger window and looks over at the barrel of a gun held by a very serious-looking police officer. The policeman tells her to shut off her car and keep both hands in sight. She does that, and after she shuts off the engine, the officer orders her to get out of her vehicle and place both hands on the car. She complies and is quickly handcuffed and put into the patrol car. She's too bewildered at that point to ask any questions, and she's taken to the police station where she is fingerprinted, photographed, and placed in a cell. After a couple of hours, a police officer approaches the cell and opens the door for her. She's escorted back to the booking desk where the original officer is waiting with her personal effects. He hands her the bag containing her things and says, Ma'am, I am really sorry for this mistake, but you see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn and cursing the blue streak. Then I noticed the What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker, the Choose Life license tag, and the chrome-plated fish emblem on the trunk, and so naturally I assumed that the scar you were driving was stolen. Remember what it means to hallow God's name? To give God honor by our words, by our attitudes, and by our actions. And look at this Bible verse. This is a beautiful verse, and I love the graphic. It's a prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock. There's that word again for God. My rock and my redeemer. Now, friends, when we say, hallowed be your name, We're asking God to represent him well, not just in our public life, but in our private life as well. Because you see, the real test of your character is not what you do when other people are watching. It's what you do when you're alone. It's what you do when you're miles from home in that hotel room. It's what you do when when everybody's gone to bed and you're watching television or looking at the screen of your computer. And I believe this. I believe that this idea that 
that God's honor and God's reputation are bound up in the attitudes and actions of his people is what Jesus had in mind when he said these words to his followers. He said this, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now, what is Jesus getting at when he says, you are the salt of the earth? Well, realize this. Jesus doesn't say, you will become the salt of the earth. He says, right now, at this moment, you are, as followers of Christ, the salt of the earth. Now, what was salt used for? back in biblical times. Well, one thing it was used for was to preserve food, right? To keep it from spoiling or decaying. And so the thought here is that God wants to use Christians to keep this culture from decaying and spoiling any more than it already has. And that is so important for us to understand. There's a story, and this is in the Bible, it's in the book of Judges. There's this military leader, his name is Abimelech. And he goes to war against the people in the city called Shechem. And after the, the conquest, he spreads salt over the whole area. Now, why does he do that? Well, the simple answer is he wants to keep anything from growing. He wants that ground to be infertile. Now, that's a picture of what happens when a believer takes a stand for God. And here's what I mean. When you take a stand for God, you make the place where you work, the place where you go to school, the place in your neighborhood... Less fertile soil for ungodly influences. You make it more difficult for sinful attitudes and sinful actions to take root in people's lives. Salty Christians help preserve a decaying culture. And if ever there was a time that we need to be salt, it's now. Now, here's another thing that salt was used for. It was used to flavor food. How many of you like salt on your food? Now, think about this. Sometimes when you eat food, it can really be bland. So you've got to spice it up, right? Church, Christians should not be bland. Christians should be the most energetic, the most engaging, the most enthusiastic people on the face of the earth. Because think about this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, do you know your purpose in life? You should. And think about this. If you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus has settled your past He's assured your future. He's promised to give you the strength you need for every challenge in your life today. That's something to be excited about, to be energetic about. And, and here's the thing. If you're a Christian, God has called you to live an extraordinary life that influences other people. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth. But here's the, the really big question. How do you do that? I mean, how do we live in such a way that we really do make a difference in this world? And my answer would be this. We need to follow the example of somebody who made the most incredible difference with his life. And who would that be? Exactly. Jesus. How did Jesus live? Because here's the truth. We read in Scripture that Jesus represented God perfectly with his words and his attitudes and his actions. And notice this. This is a beautiful verse written by, by Jesus' best friend, John. And he said this about Jesus. He said, the word, that's a reference to Christ, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's the incarnation, that Jesus becomes a human being. And then he goes on to say this. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Now, I want you to notice this next phrase because it's so important. Full of, what are the two things that Jesus is full of? Full of grace and full of truth. So if we're going to represent Jesus well in this world, what does that mean for us? That we need to be grace providers. 
God's grace needs to come through our hearts and through our lives and be extended to other people. So we need to be people who are full of grace, but full of what at the same time? Truth. God does not want us to compromise his truth. Let me share a story about being a grace provider. It's one of my favorite stories. It goes like this. We were the only family with children in the restaurant. I sat Eric in a high chair and noticed everyone was quietly eating and talking. Suddenly, Eric squealed with glee and said, Hi there. He pounded his fat baby hands on the high chair tray. His eyes were wide with excitement, and his mouth was bared in a toothless grin. I looked around and saw the source of his excitement. It was a man with a tattered rag of a coat, dirty, greasy, worn. His pants were baggy with a zipper at half-mast, and his toes poked out of his would-be shoes. His shirt was dirty. His hair was uncombed and unwashed. His whiskers were too short to be called a beard, and his nose was so varicose it looked like a road map. We were far away from him, but I was sure that he smelled. His hands waved and flapped on loose wrists. Hi there, baby. Hi there, big boy. I see a buster, the man said to Eric. My husband and I exchanged looks. What do we do? Eric continued to laugh and answer, Hi, hi there. Everybody in the restaurant noticed and looked at us and then looked back at the man. The old geezer was creating a nuisance with my beautiful baby. Our meal came, and the man began shouting from across the room, Do you know Pat-a-cake? Do you know Peekaboo? Hey, look, look, he knows Peekaboo. Nobody thought the old man was cute. He was obviously drunk. My husband and I were embarrassed, and so we ate in silence, all except for Eric, who was running through his repertoire for the admiring Skid Row bum, who in turn reciprocated with his cute comments. We finally got through the meal and headed for the door. My husband told me to pay the check, and told me to meet him in the parking lot. The old man sat poised between me and the door. Lord, just let me get out of here before he speaks to me or Eric, I prayed. As I drew closer to the man, I turned my back, trying to sidestep him and avoid any air he might be breathing. As I did, Eric leaned over my arm, reaching with both arms in a baby's pick-me-up position, and before I could stop him, Eric had propelled himself from my arms into the arms of this man. Suddenly, a very smelly old man and a very young baby embraced. Eric, in an act of total trust, laid his tiny head on the man's ragged shoulder. The man's eyes closed, and I saw tears hover just beneath his lashes. His old hands, full of grime and pain and hard labor, gently cradled my baby's bottom and stroked his back. I stood awestruck. The old man rocked and cradled Eric in his arms for a moment, and then his eyes opened and set squarely on mine. He said in a firm voice, you take care of this baby. Somehow I managed, I will. He pried Eric from his chest, unwillingly, longingly, as though he were in pain. I took my baby and the man said, God bless you, ma'am. I said nothing more than a muttered thanks. With Eric in my arms, I ran for the car. My husband was wondering why I was crying and, and holding Eric so tightly and why I was saying, my God, my God, please forgive me. I had just witnessed Christ's love shown through the innocence of a tiny child who saw no sin, who made no judgment, a child who saw a soul and a mother who saw a suit of clothes. I was a Christian who was blind, holding a child who was not. I felt God asking, are you willing to share your son for a moment? 
I shared mine for all eternity. Powerful story, isn't it? About being a grace provider so that we can represent God well in this world so that people will know that there is a God who really loves them and cares about them. But there's a flip side. Jesus was full of grace, but what else was Jesus full of? He's full of truth. And as Christ's followers, if we're gonna represent him well in this world, we can never compromise God's truth. Now, I've got something I wanna share with you. This is really pretty remarkable. It was from a TV show where this noted physician appeared and he made this statement and it has to do with being a truth teller. He said this, listen, quote, lying is an important part of social life and children who are unable to lie are children who may have developmental problems. Did you hear that? If you don't teach your kids to lie, they're gonna have developmental problems, really? And I thought, you know, how different the values of the world are from God's values. There was a story one time about Harvard University, and they were offered $20 million to teach a course in ethics, and they couldn't accept the money. You know why? They couldn't come up with any standards for ethics that everybody agreed on. Church, think about this. It isn't a university that determines ethics, is it? It isn't a judge. It isn't a politician. It is God himself. And we saw this a few weeks ago. We talked about absolute truth, that God's truth applies to all people in all places in all generations. And this is the truth that God wants us to stand up for. But church, this is so important. As we stand up for that truth, how do we do it? With grace. With grace. Because that's the heart of Jesus. Now very briefly, let me give you one more lesson from the Lord's Prayer. And this is on your outline. Lesson number four. I think my clicker has died. So Joe, if you would advance that slide. For number four. It says, when we pray, when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are asking God to work out everything in our world so that it brings glory to him. So that it brings glory to him. In fact, look at this verse from Psalm 29. It says this. Give unto the Lord the glory do his what? His name. Now let me ask you this. What is the ultimate purpose of everything that happens in this world? It's to bring glory to God. What is the ultimate purpose of everything that happens in your life? And it's the same thing, to bring glory to God. But here's, here's the deal. It's easy for me to say that this morning. Everything that happens in our lives brings glory to God. But what exactly does that mean? Because that's kind of a fuzzy concept that things bring glory to God. Let me see if I can explain it this way. And, and I'm going to use a, another football metaphor because I started with football. We're going to end there. But imagine this. You're at a football game and it goes into overtime and your, your team has won the coin toss and here comes the ball sailing through the air, kick off in overtime. Your player catches the ball on the five-yard line. What is his goal? What's he trying to do? Yeah, he's trying to score a touchdown. He wants to get into the end zone. Will it be easy? Absolutely not. How many guys are trying to tackle him? Yeah, 11 guys are trying to knock him down. But what will happen if he reaches his goal? What happens if he scores a touchdown? Touchdown. Well, the fans are going to go crazy, right? There's going to be this praise erupting from the fans and the coaches and the other players. They're going to celebrate his athletic skill and his toughness and his speed. In short, they will give him glory for who he is and what he has done. Now, you take that picture of what happens in a football stadium of giving somebody glory and you think about the life of Jesus Christ. 
And to continue that metaphor, Jesus comes to our world, and what is his goal? What is his objective? To get to the end of his life, to get to the end zone without being tackled by temptation. Now, is that going to be easy? No. Jesus is going to face all kinds of obstacles to accomplishing his mission, but he is a determined man. He is on a mission. And friends, I just love telling this story of redemption because it is the most incredible story about this God who loves his children and wants to make a way for them to to come home to him. And that is the mission of Jesus Christ. That is the heart of God, our Father. And so what happens is that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, becomes a human being. And he does what has been impossible for every single human being since the days of Adam. He lives a perfect life. And then, this is remarkable, before Jesus goes to the cross, he offers this very brief and very urgent prayer. He says, Father, glorify your name. Now think about that. Jesus is going to lay down his life for us, and he wants that act of, of sacrificial love to bring glory to the name of God. He wants people to understand the heart of his Father, that God really, really has this heart of love. Now, Here's the thing. Why is it that Jesus needs to lay down his life? And the answer is because we're in serious trouble. Because we come into this world with a heart that pulls us away from God, away from his purpose and his plan. The Bible calls that sin. And sin has a serious consequence. Our sin separates us from a God who is holy and a God who is just. And one of the reasons God reveals himself with different names is so that we will see aspects of his character. And because God is holy and because God is just, He can't just look the other way. He has to punish every sin we've ever committed. So Jesus volunteers to take our punishment upon himself. And that's what happens at the cross. God is willing to put our sin on Jesus to punish him instead of us. And Jesus dies the death that we deserved. And then Jesus, it looks like he's been tackled at the one-yard line, that he didn't get into the end zone. But we know that three days later, what happens? Jesus completes his mission. He's resurrected from the dead. And he says, come to me. You know, I love that song we sang this morning. In fact, Eddie wrote that song, and I've had the privilege of playing that song with him on a number of occasions. But you think about that. Jesus is still extending this invitation. Hey, when you are tired and and burdened and weary, come to me and you will find what? Rest for your soul. And so when we accept this invitation, when we say, look, Lord, I admit I'm a sinner. I have made so many mistakes and I have broken your laws and I believe that you died for me and that you rose from the dead I want to surrender my life to you that's when you find rest for your soul and church here's what I want you to see when you look back at the life of Jesus everything that happens in his life his birth his perfect life his death his resurrection are all pointed at one purpose and that purpose is this to bring glory to God and do you realize that that's true of your life and mine now I don't know what all of you are going through this morning This might be an easy time for you. It could be a hard time. You could be in a season of joy, a season of sorrow, a season of disappointment or discouragement. But I know this, Christian, that God's at work. That he has promised that he is is conforming our hearts and our minds to Christ. He's making us more like Jesus. And here's the reason he's doing that, to bring glory to himself. Now, that's God's job. That's what God's up to in this world. What's our job? Our job is this, to honor the name of God as he works in our lives with our words and our attitudes and our actions. Because I'll tell you this, a day is coming when every single person who has ever 
lived will give glory to God. Willingly or unwillingly. There is this really powerful passage in the book of Philippians that says this, that one day every knee will bow. One day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, notice this, to the glory of God the Father. And so the question is, well, okay, that's someday, but what about this day? How are we supposed to live now? And I think there are two things we need to do. First of all, we need to continue to live in a way that brings honor to God. And secondly, we need to do this. We need to continue to pray the prayer that Jesus taught us when he said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. I sought the Lord, and He answered me. He delivered me from my fears. I sought the Lord, and He answered me. He delivered me from my fears I'm not scared here I'm not scared here I'm not scared here I'm not scared image reminds us that a day is coming when you're going to wipe every tear from our eyes. And we're thankful that you've guaranteed our future because of Jesus. And Lord, as we live in this world that is so broken, so fractured, in a nation that just needs you so desperately, God, I pray that you would enable us, your people, to be full of grace and full of truth, just like you are, Lord Jesus. And Father, for the one who maybe has never understood the bad news and the good news, maybe today is the day that they're going to finally take that step of surrendering their life to you. And God, I pray for the one who maybe even right now feels that tug of your spirit on their heart. And if that's where you are this morning, I just want to encourage you with your, with your eyes closed. You don't have to say anything out loud, but 
just tell God in your heart, God, I, I need you. I admit I've failed in so many ways. And I need your forgiveness. I need a new life, God. So I want you to know that I believe Jesus died for me and, and came back to life, and I want to live for you. God, I know you will always honor that prayer. And Father, if ever there was a time that you need the church to stand up, to be a, a place of grace, a place of hope and healing, it's now, God. So help us, help Boynton Beach Community Church to be that kind of church, full of grace and full of truth. And Father, as we sing this last song, I pray that it would bring joy to your heart as we worship your name. In Jesus' name we pray now, amen. Church, let's stand and worship together.